Our world is gripped by fear, and that fear is very much the product of a false narrative. There is a virus. It, we would much prefer not to have this virus in our world, but there is a chaotic, panicked overreaction that is far deadlier than the virus itself. Talk about the unholy alliance of big tech, big pharma, and a very captured media. Vaccines are being sold as a ticket to freedom by people who stand to make countless billions. Nobody is safe unless everybody's safe. How convenient. In this crazy world, I have to start by saying that I'm not anti-vax, that I take vaccines myself when I travel, that my children are vaccinated. I hope that all of these vaccines get a clean bill of health and that they get applied safely to vulnerable people. I do not want to see the whole world go mad and start vaccinating children and healthy people for a disease that's of no risk to them. Panda started off as a conversation, really. What we shared was an observation that the data and the facts, the reality of coronavirus was far, far away from what the media and public health institutions were presenting to the world. And what is very clear in the data is that lockdowns cause a great deal of harm. Lockdowns are the most regressive strategy that has ever been invented. The wealthy have become much wealthier. Trillions of dollars of wealth has been transferred from the working class to wealthy people. I'm motivated here by fear for what is going to happen to our world, to the fabric of our society. I'm worried about the future of my children. I want them to live in a free and liberal democracy, not in the totalitarian techno-medico-bureaucracy or technocracy that we're heading into. Nick, it's so great to have you on Speaking Naturally. Thank you for having me, Robin. So, Nick, we're, we're going to talk about some pretty big picture stuff today. Um, I think uh, everyone is, is kind of done with the minutiae. Um, and there is a lot of people realizing that there is something not right about the world that we're living in today. But they can't seem to put a finger on it because there's a lot of complexity and uncertainty that we're often talking about. And depending on what stream of media or information knowledge and understanding you've gained over this two-year journey it can take people into dramatically different places and you know in some ways just to give context we kind of spent most of the industrialized world spent the first year trying to run away trying to escape lock themselves away out of the bed. yes and they spent the second year feeling that that a technology in the form of genetic vaccines would, um, you know, set them free again and allow the return of normal life. And yeah. as we now are at the cusp of moving into the third year, um, people are quite confused because it seems to be a bit of both. You know, there seems to be now talk about more lockdowns and the use certainly of many more um, doses of um, genetic vaccines. Um, and I use that term because it's used by... Um, um, in a in a recent paper in NPJ vaccines, and I, you know, I think it's a useful way of looking at at a completely new platform and technology. So um, let's kick off um, the and obviously you as a an individual with an actuarial science background. One of the themes that is going to link everything 
is risk okay so we're going to talk about risk so my first question to to you nick is you know we've been we've had a world that is pretty much focused on one disease for two years you know whether it's the public the healthcare system businesses travel industry um health authorities there's been one disease in our focus what kind of risks come along with that we know about collateral damage but you know surely it's a very risky business and we don't have a lot of precedence yes yeah, so, well we actually do from other domains because what we've been doing is <clears throat> taking in extraordinarily complex systems and interactions and treating as them as if they are amenable to study in a spreadsheet. So whether you're looking at the interaction between the virus and the human body, or the immune system, or society, or the feedback loop from the actions we take, the measures, the restrictions, and so on, on the virus itself, these are all incredibly complex issues. And it is only a fool who attempts to make wholesale changes to complex systems without first testing very carefully and on the margins whether those changes have any unforeseen, you know, second order effects or long term effects. I mean, just, just at a very basic level, any response we take to a viral outbreak will place evolutionary pressure on that virus. The virus will evolve to work around the response. That's not something unique about viruses. That's a feature of evolutionary systems. And this is very much an evolutionary system. And that is probably the biggest issue that has received the least attention in this whole story. A lot of people have pointed out that lockdowns might not for foreseeable reasons work or have a, a net benefit. Many of people have argued that at least for some subset of the population, vaccines might not have a net benefit. So the first problem and the first mishandling of risk at a very high level is simply the idea that abrupt changes to complex systems are sensible. I mean, um, are you are you suggesting, which I think you are, is that that if different actions had been taken much earlier, we would have been out the other side. The actions that have been taken because of the inability to properly address the complexity is actually just perpetuating the you know, we're in a spiral, essentially. That worsening, worsening and perpetuating the story. Yeah. So you wanted to adjust as few things as possible and make your adjustments in the areas where you had an intuition that they would count the most. Instead, we've thrown out a standard practice. Let's call it that because I hate the term best practice. It's a, it's a garbage construct. But we've, we've thrown out conventions left, right, and center from the very beginning. So I mean, just talk to me about those in, in, in relation to tools available. I mean, I, I, I think for the average person in the street, 
they felt there wasn't a tool because they were drawn to this idea that the real tool for a new pathogen would be a newly developed vaccine. They weren't available. So they said that we have no antiviral drugs that are going to work. Therefore, we've got to hide away from it. We've got to, we've got to try and reduce circulation and transmission. So you're suggesting that there are other things that could have been done in year one. Yes, and they're, they're things that we've always done in medicine and public health. So the first thing you would do is concentrate your resources on protecting vulnerable people. And that includes, for example, trying to limit the number of infectious people who end up in hospital, which means doing what you always do in medicine and treating the patient in front of you. The absence of some magical pharmaceutical industry antiviral bullet doesn't change that in the slightest. There are plenty of things that can be done before people turn blue and need to be stuck on oxygen in the hospital. Um, you know, that, that list of things that can be done is long. Um, well-being and health, the psychological well-being, those are all important things. We, we have to control for a placebo effect in clinical trials because the placebo effect is very strong. So is the nocebo effect, the effect of morbid dread on the outcomes in clinical cases. Well, that, and, that's, we, we, saw, we saw a lot of discussion early on about flattening the curve. And it is interesting in the narrative that that term, which is really relating to um, pressure on hospitals and, and particularly critical care, has largely disappeared from the narrative because it was substituted for this idea of chasing cases using molecular techniques to find cases. And of course, now, now we're so deep into that rabbit warren and the average person now, I mean, literally, Nick, just before you and I started this conversation, Boris Johnson has announced the first death from Omicron in the UK. No, it's the first death with Omicron. Yeah, with, with Omicron, yes. So, um, and, and that, you know, we, we know that that's just about perpetuating this illusion that yeah. you've got to just keep chasing variants. Yeah, and, and also ginning up the fear. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, th th this was a deliberate and express intention of these behavioral science teams that have been set up all, all, all around the world. Uh, they weren't interested in correctly informing anybody or uh, getting them to do things that had proven to be correct. Their, their sole focus of attention was in maximizing perceived threat. That's not a very good thing to do from a public health perspective because the nocebo effect is powerful. That alone can cause clinical outcomes to be much, much worse. So my gut feel tells me that perhaps... 90% of the deaths that have happened during this uh, pandemic that have been attributed to COVID could have been avoided simply by pursuing normal medical practice and not trying to drive fear into the hearts of every human being on the planet. Um, I even feel that at a visceral local level, just having observed the behavior of my friends, the ones who were never scared, the ones who saw through the propagandized narrative, None of them had any difficulty dealing with COVID. Now, admittedly, it's a very mild disease for, for young and healthy people. And, and I, I mean that by that, you know, young in a very generous sense that would still cast a, a gray bearded man on the other side of your screen as, as young. 
um, and healthy, robustly yeah, healthy. Go. There you go. Um, and uh, yeah, I noticed that friends who were scared uh, panicked at the same time that they got a cough, and uh, their their outcomes were much worse. They had they experienced the whole thing harder. Now that's anecdotal. I've got nothing to prove that with. I'm not going to give you any statistics. Could be wrong, but my sense is that the combination of this aggressively propagandized fear narrative, which completely distorted risk perspectives. And I, when I say completely distorted, I mean by, say, more than a thousand times that the average person out there perceives the risk of COVID um, to, to, to be more than a thousand times what it actually is for them. Yeah, I, um, I was just looking at a heat map um, from the UK, looking at uh, deaths per 100,000 population. And, and you'll see, you see a a blip that is not out of order just it has happened many in on many occasions historically um but there is one blip at the beginning of the first wave there's also another blip that appears to be another kind of dry tinder effect in in the uh, early part of uh, of 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 this year 2021 that did actually also coincide with the uh, release of the of the genetic vaccines um, but other than that we are not in any kind of abnormal position and the uk is supposedly uh, one of the worst hit countries in the world so there is an illusion going on so let, let, just looking at risk and looking at the societal impacts on business you know essentially in a technologically driven world um, people's livelihoods are very closely tied to industri industry um, what kind of impacts do you think, for, just from a risk perspective? I mean, many people are talking about a, a potential end of this now, 23, 24, and then a bounce back that might happen in a year. From a just an actuarial point of view, where do you think we're going with this? Well, it's not really an actuarial subject. It's a, it's a social subject, an economic subject. But my sense is that we're, we're in for a very, very hard time. Um, it can be covered, masked over by doing some very foolish um, uh, interventions in the economy that will have deleterious long-term effects. We've been doing that for a long time now, actually, in the well, world. Like print, printing money. Essentially printing <laughs> money. I mean, yeah. it's a little more Quantity. involved than that. Yeah, but there's a lot of lot of that. But I, I wanted to ask you, given your economic savviness as well, is um, a lot of talk about the agenda moving from vaccinations to vaccine passports to digital IDs to digital currency. What's well, let's even that? let's even take a step higher than that. the The biggest problem. Uh, bigger than the printing of money, bigger than the ginning up of fear, bigger than the distortion of, uh, you know, narratives and uh, um, uh, supply chain problems that have uh, been exacerbated as a result of these capricious restrictions. Bigger than all of this has been is the is the trend towards centralization. It's a it's a basic mistake. We, we know that centralization doesn't work in, in the sense that we can look at every instance of it in history and see nothing but misery and, and, uh, and strife emerging from it. Um, and we know why. It's, it's to do with information and how decisions are made. Uh, there's a very robust 
discipline around understanding why centralization of decision making causes own, you know net adverse outcomes all the time. Um, so th this is the most dangerous thing, and various <clears throat> also false narratives have crept into the dialogue over decades. This is not two years worth of emergence, it's decades of emergence that sort of point in the direction of a this time is different narrative. Um, the creation or fabrication of global crises and the admission of only global solutions to those fabricated global crises is the pattern uh, in which these ideas normally present. And it's the constant repetition about these fabricated crises that uh, causes people to be captured by the narrative and to normalize this kind of talk where we are expected to sacrifice all the engines of human growth and flourishing in favor of the designated global solution. So, so what what does the average individual do do? I mean, there is this chain, isn't there, from from vaccinations to, you know, digital control. You become a number. Um, then, obviously, digital currencies are, are definitely part of the conversation now. Um, and and of course, you're a great fan of this idea of, of of not capitulating. How does this look for the average individual? Look, the, the first thing I'd say to the ad, ad, average individual is don't fall for the idea that all of this kind of talk is some kind of conspiracy theory um, because it's all, it's all out in the open. Nobody's, well, I'm not suggesting that there is a conspiracy on the go, uh, uh, a room full of uh, evil geniuses uh, plotting to go down specific paths and do certain things. Um, you don't need that to have this kind of uh, direction of travel. But the class of people, should we say, who are very keen on these ideas of centralization and the, the monitored society of the constant surveillance of an authoritarian state, uh, these people are telling you that this and have been telling you this for decades. So there's, no, there's nothing secret <coughs> or necessarily criminal about this. You know, we might perceive it as criminal, I, you know, I, I sort of regard it as what, what they're doing is evil, but it's not some kind of criminal syndicate launching a, a, a missile at the heart of the world. It's a class of people with very, very bad ideas. They're very naughty boys. Hey, can we give and, people some identity? World Economic Forum, Billionaire Club. Can we give all them of the above? Yeah. yeah, Atlantic Council, Trilateral Commission, uh, any one of a number of organizations that have been uh, indoctrinating corporate executives and the youth from ac the academy and uh, politicians and public health officials in these narratives of centralization and global control. So what, why, um, the question hundreds is why, of organizations. And, and why, Nick? What, what is their driver? I mean, human beings are quite unusual, are they not, that they seem to have this desire for continuous growth. Many, most other animal species don't. Once they reach a point at which their reproductive needs and other needs are met, 
they can reach a sort of steady state existence. Humans have this desire for, or at least a subset of humans have a desire for greed and control. But um, why these people, what's driving them? What do they actually want from all of this? So, I mean, I think the drive for control is the, is the one that's worth focusing on. Um, and there's nothing new under the sun when it comes to that. Um, and I think it's also important not to paint everybody who's a, a, a COVIDian cult groupie as somebody who perceives themselves as uh, launching uh, incredible weapons of control over the civilian population. I think many of them are kind of the useful idiots, the foot soldiers of the, of the revolution, as it were. Um, and they might believe that what they are doing is actually about public health or in the interests of the population. And everybody who's educated and knowledgeable knows that. And they're just, you know, going along with the, uh, the obviously correct thing. Um, when it comes to the people who are maybe the architects, and again, I emphasize I'm not talking about some necessarily some group of uh, people who are conniving. That's a class of people who have power and who uh, are, are, are networked through a kind of a loose, loose affiliations who meet each other at uh, these events at Davos, at uh, whatever, you know, planning session or um, billionaire shindig um, yeah. and where they share these ideas and, uh, and their political agenda. And it's, it's very important to understand the structure and, and how these agendas manifest. Um, you know, political agendas are very seldom spelt out in the way that old style politicians would do by saying, you know, I'm, I'm here to be elected and I promise you that if I'm elected, I'll do the following things. No, political agendas are usually cast as predictions about the future. And we've been saturated by such predictions. And those are, you need to read those predictions. The Great Reset, Fourth Industrial Revolution, New World Order, Build Back Better, New Normal. I, I, I need two breaths to get through the list of uh, names for these things. Yes. And those, those predictions are the political agenda that is then propagandized, leading to the formation of ideologies that then enslave the foot soldiers yes or entrap think, the foot soldiers do you think any part of that is is out of concern over growing populations and dwindling resources as well as um you know the fact that the environment is we're in the middle of the sixth mass extinction habitats are, are going obviously the 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 climate change uh, argument is being used i mean i see it from a much broader perspective of general um, ecological collapse, but um, is is that a driver as well to usurp control of these dwindling resources and growing populations? Yes, even <clears throat> so, the assumption of dwindling resources is what's known as Malthusianism. Um, this idea that there is a finite carrying capacity um, for the planet, or for a country, or for a food type, or a resource, or something like this. Malthusianism raises its ugly head every every now and then, and um, it's never too far away from us. It's a, it's a fatally flawed idea because it discounts the emergence of new knowledge. And that is why Malthusian predictions are systematically proven wrong. Uh, in fact, it, they, 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 they can become self-fulfilling if enough pre people in a certain place believe them. 
then they start doing uh, themselves self-harm. And that self-harm becomes the thing that diminishes their access to resources because they become uh, less uh, efficient at utilizing what's at their disposal and they make poorer decisions. But the creation of new knowledge has systematically afforded us the ability to do more with less um, in ways that are they're always unconceivable in the here and now, now, inconceivable, sorry, in the here and now. Uh, necessarily so, because the creation of future knowledge, by definition, is unpredictable. If we were able to predict our future knowledge, then we would, we would, it would be our knowledge now. You know, so the the, the people say, but oh, but what are we going to do? How are we going to solve the whatever shortage, the top topsoil shortage, the 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 fresh water shortage? How are we? You you can't just say that that more people and you'll you'll be able to feed them all and give them. Well, yes, you can. We just don't know how. And um, history has taught us that lesson many times. There have been um, many predictions at various stages in history that uh, we would run out of food and that there would be mass starvation. And uh, little experiments done to prove this in contained ecosystems involving creatures, some type of insect or something um, that doesn't know how to create new knowledge. And they put those little creatures in a box with limited resources and you see the population explode and then crash until none of them are alive anymore. And that, that kind of experiment is used by Malthusians to invoke the idea that humans are just like that, but we aren't. We are unique creatures. We create explanatory knowledge and that explanatory knowledge enables us to create new knowledge uh, because we have uh, the ability to work by means of conjecture and criticism. That is to say, we have that ability when we don't do stupid things like follow the science. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm familiar with those experiments. The other problem with those experiments is that they don't include sufficient ecological complexity when you're dealing with the whole biosphere and yes. all of the microbes. I mean, I think the, the microbial element actually has always been the, the secret <clears throat> weapon that nature has. It has, it has extraordinary intelligence in terms of, you know, the, all, much of the... Uh, climate change uh, predictions have been um, confounded by changes in the way in which the adaptation of microbial communities that don't appear to have any kind of central nervous system or anything else manage to tree and yes. find some balance again. Yes, and that's, that's sort of uh, knowledge creation at a much slower pace, if you like, uh, the evolution of natural systems, which takes place by uh, you know, pressures, owing to change and then the evolution of the system in, in biological terms. It's a very slow process, but I agree with you that that, that does happen and is very hard to take into account because the second, third and fourth order effects are impossible to foresee um, and in combination behave in very complex feed, feedback loops. So yes, that would be another type of argument, but I think the, the really important part is uh, not to discount the, the the spectacular ability that our species and our species alone has to create new knowledge um, and thereby to increase our flourishing uh, even as our number increases. Yeah, so, so in, in essence, what you're saying is that the guys who are controlling decisions in these um, cent centralized corridors of power um, have either knowingly got it wrong or unwittingly got it wrong 
they are seizing an opportunity to to effectively put in a, a reset for for everything for society um, under the premise of this 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 virus, which is one of the reasons they want to keep kicking the can down the road. And speaking yes. of kicking the can down the road, let's have a, a very brief discussion on your views on what's happening with with um, Omicron, another dead cat on the table, another red herring, um, or is it something that we should be concerned about? And I then want you to sort of, if you can just look at the impact on on Africa as well, because I know that the in Switzerland, in the UN, in the WHO, they're very, very concerned that that um, so much of Africa is not jumping on board with this vaccination program. Um, if you can just lead from Omicron, Omicron to the pressure that African nations are currently facing from WHO and others. Yeah, so Omicron, by all accounts, is mild, not resulting in any pressure on the hospital system and not resulting in deaths from Omicron. No doubt with a very transmissible virus, a certain percentage of people arriving at a hospital for other reasons will be tested upon admission, uh, log, duly logged up as a case of Omicron, uh, even though they aren't actually a case of disease because they don't have the disease process underway. Nothing new there. That's been done since the very beginning of COVID, often in some comical ways. Uh, an example yet again of traditional uh, medical practice that's been thrown out of the window. Um, so there will no doubt be some of those, but at the moment, it looks like this is, <clears throat> uh, you could say a couple of things, it's mild, it's transmissible, and it is hitting vaccinated people. Uh, so I don't, you know, I haven't seen statistics actually breaking it out, but certainly um, given the volume of the cases and the anecdotes that are coming my way, just even my own family circle, it's, it's almost comical. We've got 10 people vaccinated and six people vaccine free and five of the 10 vaccinated people had Omicron. So, uh, and all in the last month, you know, well, whether it's Omicron or another variant, of course, I can't tell, neither can they, but I'm guessing it's Omicron. So it, it's kind of almost comical right now. And uh, the reaction of Boris Johnson with his uh, border closures and uh, this constant turning up of fear, I guess is to be expected. I wonder who's pulling his strings because he's not making his decisions by himself. Yeah, um, that's not the Boris Johnson we, we once knew. But somebody is pushing him to uh, continue punting the narrative, shutting down Christmas and pushing the vaccine at every turn. Yeah. So you can carry um, controlling people because the pandemic gets maintained. Yeah. Um, no, uh, absolutely. In Africa, you asked the vaccine. Yeah. So Sorry. tell us about that. No, please. What, what, what do you think is, is going on there? And what kind of 2023 might it be for African nations? And also, have you got any ideas whether in the background to this sanctions, other deals are being done on the basis of, you know, accepting um, playing the game with vaccinations? Look, I have no idea. No, no, I have no doubt that such pressure is in, in, is, is, is in existence. Uh, I think... There's been a lot of pressure at every uh, turn. Uh, the, this kind of lockstep rollout, I, I cannot accept the idea that this was simply each country copying the next one. There was just too much commonality and timing and wording, uh, too much, uh, let's call it bullshit narrative, people making and perpetuating the same mistakes for too long in the face of 
massive and, and incontrovertible evidence that the things they were doing weren't working. So, you know, we do need to accept an element of coordination and planning. This is not to say that the whole thing is planned or the, you know, going back to that kind of, kind of conspiracy idea, but there are elements of, um, of conspiracy, uh, sorry, uh, you know, of, of, of planning, of um, there are elements of error, blunder, and there are elements of emergence from these uh, ideologies that have been distilled as these centralist motifs have propagated over recent decades. So, you know, it's all of the above. Um, the situation is, I believe, that most people here in South Africa and probably on the African continent are not interested in vaccination. They've kind of, they've, they've taken a measure of this whole uh, new world ordery kind of uh, move, the, the, the direction of travel being towards a kind of uh, colonialism in a, in a, in a, in a slightly different guise. Exactly. And they don't want any of it. It is imperialism, isn't it? It's nothing other it than is. imperialism. Yeah. But now, instead yeah. of looking at, uh, you know, resources in the ground or, or, or agricultural crops, you're looking at the human being. And, um, and of course, sub-Saharan Africa, in terms of a bottom-heavy population, I mean, this is when you look at the people in control, they could well see that as a threat. And, um, mm -hmm. and therefore, they need to usurp control over... Well, I'll, I'll give you an example of this. Okay, so one of the political parties has taken the South African Health Products Regulatory Authority to court over their approval of the vaccines for the use in children. And they put together a very uh, good case and government has responded. Um, they responded with a 493 page uh, submission, which was one of the most pathetic documents I've ever read. And in 493 pages, they managed to cite just 10 scientific documents, one of which was published after they had made their decision. And not a single document that was actually part of their decisional decision process. So there wasn't a minute or a discussion note or, you know, nothing, nothing was uh, recorded of that nature. And so their case was looking incredibly weak. And this obviously rang a bell at uh, Global HQ. And over the horizon, charging in to save the day, came the, the proxy organization of the George Soros Foundation to join the case as Amicus Curiae. And that, that you just have to think about how bizarre that is, you know. So this should be a local matter being contested locally. But the, the UN are terrified that this outcome is heading in the wrong direction. And so they send in the big guns to go and come and add the aura of authority to the approval of child vaccination. At the FDA hearings, we saw what this was all about. Evidence was led showing that expected mortality for children would be higher as a result of vaccination. They're not at risk to the disease, uh, to mortality from the disease. Healthy children have died at approximately a rate of zero from COVID. And the vaccines have a very appreciable rate of mortality, much higher than any products that have been rolled out on mass before. And so it's, a, it's you know, they're one of the, the two very broad categories of people for whom vaccination presents an obvious and, and incontrovertibly net negative benefit. Absolutely. Okay. In, in so this was presented to the FDA. Amazing. And the information was not contested, not refuted, not rebutted. 
And the concluding remark was chilling. It was, well, I guess we won't really know how, how risky they really are in children until we've rolled them out. I think that's known as an experiment, is it not? Yes. No, well, it's not even, it's worse than that. It's kind of like, uh, I don't know. And, and so what, you know, what that kind of person is telling you is that in his book, it's okay to steal health from children under the somewhat tenuous theory that that will have a benefit in terms of protecting the elderly. And that is upside down society right there for you. Yeah. And I suspect what our government did was rely heavily on the approvals that had taken place in the US. And of course, you know that in the UK, your vaccination committee, what's it, the Joint Vaccination Committee, I've forgotten what it stands for. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, JCVI um, uh, recommended against approval for children and the government approved it. Absolutely. Um, Politics so, over science, yeah. Political, yeah. And I, I mean, they want, I mentioned that they're one of two groups. The other group that's, that's uh, just as persuasively should not be administered vaccines is recovered individuals um, who in South Africa, for example, that's the majority of the population, 70 or 80% of the population is recovered from COVID. They enjoy robust, sterilizing, uh, durable and broad uh, immunity. I mean, the reinfection rate in a massive study in Qatar uh, 250,000 unvaccinated people, only 0.4% were reinfected over a year. So you are talking about uh, a much more robust immunity than any vaccine can give you. And those, those people present, you know, the, the recovered individuals present no risk to, uh, you know, no appreciable risk to... Omicron obviously provides um, people who, who would claim that um, a problem, those of us who do claim that, because um, the jury has to probably be out at this stage, and it does allow them to kick the can down the road once again until we've got enough data to, to look at. But obviously, we, we'll know in a, in a few weeks where we are. Um, just in terms of, I mean, these are extraordinary times because of what's happening. It's clear that science isn't there. Um, from a public point of view, there is seems to be ever more confusion about the role of public health. We had a system in which public health centralized global health has kind of taken over from individual health. Um, the locus of control shifted away. I mean, in, in our world, in, in healthcare, we've been kind of enjoying prior to COVID this transition towards um, more towards individual autonomy, treasuring and building the therapeutic relationship so that individualized care can be meted out in, to that individual in that environment. Um, suddenly, that's been thrown to the wind. The, the average um, doctor or healthcare professional is now looking over their shoulders back at a, a tall building somewhere in Switzerland, usually, saying, well, it depends what they say. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is, a, this is a dramatic shift in that's, how that's centralization for you, though, again, right? Yeah. Um, another example of it. And it's, it's, it, all centralization becomes dogmatic, yes. So doctors are not free to treat uh, according to their lights. Um, and they, they, the patient in front of them stops being the patient in front of them. There's a procedure, a, a guideline that they have to follow. And 
that no matter how much their judgment departs from that guideline, they're not allowed to do anything about that. And we've seen that in spades for you know, the, the absolute refusal to pursue early treatment. Um, and once patients were in hospital, the, the kind of approaches taken were had many doctors scratching their heads and saying, well, wait a second, this is looking like it's uh, killing people and this wouldn't be what, the way we treated a influenza pneumonia patient, you know. Um, <clears throat> so that kind of centralization and, uh, and uh, uh, the, the, info, the, the emergence of dogma in, in areas of endeavor that used to be scientific and now as a result of the dogma no longer are, has been starting. Um, and that also that drift of, of taking uh, control and responsibility away from the individual. Uh, there's this in creeping intrusion of notions like, uh, no, obesity is really not the responsibility of the person who's obese. This is some kind of endocrinal malfunction and there's, we've got a tablet for you or an injection for you or something like that. Um, and so the, the, the uh, idea of the sovereign individual has been eroded in, in the medical field as well in favor of these very bureaucratized, utilitarian, um, uh, dogmatic and centralized motifs. If, if you are prepared to accept it. So now let's just look at um, societal impacts. Uh, you know, the, the, the term awake is often used for people like you and I who have a sense that there's something different going on to the people who we might describe as not yet awake. Um, every totalitarian system um, usually has a, uh, you know, an innings in which increasing numbers of people in an out group become gradually more aware and then um, topple that system. Um, where do you think we are on a continuum of increased awareness um, obviously, it's going to be different in different parts of the world. I, I have a sense in Africa, because of colonialism, they, the average person seems to have a, more of an understanding of, of what might be going on. Um, but, but just give us your perspective on you, where you think we are in terms of, um, you know, the possibility of people saying enough is enough. I don't want to play this game. We're not going to go along with it. Yeah, so I mean, the, the amazing thing is how it varies uh, from place to place on the planet. Uh, Poland, for example, seems to have taken a very strong line and, and called the, the called the BS in its entirety, more or less. Um, the United States seem it seems to be done now. You know, there there, there will be holdouts in the extreme uh, blue states, um, but <clears throat> which is the very strange thing, you know that. Uh, uh, civil liberties will have crashed hardest in the blue states. I, I find that uh, quite, quite, uh, it's amusing, I guess, because nothing more, but uh, yeah. So, and then Japan is also having initially been very uh, sensible about everything, then having a little bit of a dalliance with uh, the whole story of uh, going bananas for a little while and then saying, no, hold on a second, we're not doing this anymore. Uh, so they're looking pretty sensible. Um, it didn't didn't help that that a whole bunch of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines sent off to to Japan had visible contaminants in them. Yeah, that, that'll go. That'll get up a Japanese nose like nothing. Uh, exactly. if you're going to send send contaminated 
product to one country, it should not be Japan. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. But uh, the other countries are exactly the opposite. So what's going on in Germany and Austria, uh, by all accounts, is, is extreme. And yeah. there again, you, you, sit back, you sit back and scratch your head. You say, have you guys learned nothing from history? The, the, the parallels with the whole rise of Nazism are just there for anybody who's read five pages of history to see. There, there is huge resistance. I mean, the, yeah. this is the irony. There is, I mean, we're, we're in communication, you know, on a weekly basis with, with the doctors in both those countries, and there is massive resistance. And, uh, you know, that there were doctors who who uh, who use saline instead of vaccines, and now they're going after them. They're using the luciferase assay to try and track them down. I mean, th this is this is um, difficult stuff. And of course, for, from the perspective of the doctors, they were not prepared to inject you know, vaccines that they consider to be potentially harmful and of no medical benefit. So the regime is obviously being tested as, as it's at its extremes. In Australia and New Zealand, we see a similar range of experiments going. But um, yeah, but, but um, I guess what you might be alluding to is that depending on what happens in those states, they will determine how far human beings generally are prepared to accept before they they either buckle or they revolt. And, um, you know, wh where do you think it'll all go? I'm, I'm optimistic. Uh, you know, the, the story that the would-be technocrats, uh, would-be totalitarian overlords have told themselves is a wrong story, <laughs> which uh, that uh, centralized control can be used in a productive, generative way um, and so it will fail question mark on the time horizon and time horizon probably being location specific um, the, the the world of the of knowledge creation of generativity will always overcome this um, and I believe that <clears throat> there are enough good people out there who will uh, eventually put aside their fears, or as Matthias Desmet suggests, find something else to be more fearful of in the form of uh, creeping totalitarian control. And there will be a point where they push back and say no, and become willing to go through some discomfort and pain in order to make sure that the uh, modern society technocracy does not uh, emerge. We see this process happening all over the place. Uh, I'm not sure if you've listened to the wonderful interview by Freddie Sayers of, uh, of um, Kings North. Um, I've seen it come in. I haven't had a chance to, to follow it yet, but I've you seen it. Do have in. a listen, yeah, because yeah. there you have a man who most clearly comes from uh, what on the, 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 of the, on the false polarization of the left-right dichotomy he comes from the, the left. Um, I, I, I think that I think, it, and he's he's had one hell of a red pill moment, and come out and said why well, he he doesn't think that we are building the right kind of society when we start considering things like vaccine mandates and vaccine passports. And of course, I believe he is correct. I don't didn't agree with everything he said, but the way he said it was particularly beautiful and striking. 
And I think he's got another couple of Red Bulls coming his way. Uh, and it'll be very interesting to listen to him again. But um, I think the, yeah, the, 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 that the, the, the crescendo of voices from all over the spectra um, is really noticeable now and it's breaking through. There are just too many dissidents, too many people starting to question. I mean, LinkedIn, the, the social media platform, which is one of the most anodyne corporate, um, what's, what, yeah, those are two good, good enough words for it, uh, places in, in the digital world. I mean, truly, if you, if, you, if, you, if you struggle with insomnia, 10 minutes on LinkedIn should cure it. Um, but LinkedIn is suddenly alive with uh, criticism of and questioning. It sort of contains the, the kind of noise and intensity that Twitter contained before it had to start really massively suppressing the, the, the dissident narrative. And they're really still tightening the screws on that platform. But the fact that even LinkedIn has come alive is, is, is quite significant to me. Well, I, I think what's interesting is, is that what we're beginning to see is uh, people who have received one, two, three jabs realizing that they can't just go on. You know, the, 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 A, it's not delivering a solution. And I think um, originally people saw if there was a bifurcation occurring, it was between the jab free and the jabbed but but now it's becoming more complex that people are saying look i want to get off this this roundabout you know i realize it's nothing more than something that's going to you know end up taking us to a place i don't want to be um and they're coming on board um in, do you think that that where this will lead could be one of those fundamental transition points in human evolution bifurcation trifurcation you know is it going to be one of the or is it just some kind of a little blip on the horizon we'll sort of go back to normal business after this oh it's definitely not a blip but i don't know that it's going to be a bifurcation or trifurcation um i i, I think there's an awakening that's happening <coughs> and processes that have been underway for decades will uh, be there, there, there will be a new kind of normal uh, eventually. It's not the one that's envisaged in the Great Reset and all of these intellectually shallow little parlor games. Um, you won't earn, earn nothing, but you'll be happy. Um, no, none of that way, stuff. That, that's the way we look at it is often it's uh, you'll be happy, but you'll know nothing. That yes. it's you'll know nothing. Yes. Um, but uh, so, so no, I think I think there, it's much more than a blip. I think a large number of institutions are going to be shaken to the very foundations and um, a lot of change will take place. But there are some essential problems that enabled all of this in the first place. I think we now see the problems with the, the opposite of uh, centralized totalitarian control, namely uh, extreme atomized individualism and uh, causing a breakdown in community and uh, the vibrancy of local culture. That process went way too far. There were all sorts of contributing factors, um, but we certainly can't go back to that old normal 
because we set ourselves up for the emergence of something similar to this again. So I believe that the, the kind of awakening we have to have is not merely an awakening in terms of <coughs> coming out of the pattern of fear and seeing the political reality and the, the reality of the political agenda for what it is, um, but also an awakening to the importance of questions that go around what we are about, what, what, what kind of society do we want to create, what are the important things in life. Maybe we, it is to really be human, because that brings us to the, the whole transhumanist debate. And, you know, what is human consciousness? What, where are we leading to? And I, I think it's very clear that with this kind of what we've seen over the last two years, the, the creativity element in humanity has been massively suppressed. Um, yeah, yeah. The, the ability to try and reimagine something. I mean, even the the historically, we would have imagined that a, a a very proactive civil rights movement would have immediately sprung to the fore. Um, there is huge suppression. So, can you just talk to what you think is is has happened to consciousness, to our higher needs? Um, obviously, if you suppress anything and it's attempting to find balance it could bounce back dramatically and we could see some massive, um, you know, flowering of those sort of higher elements of, of humanity, the things that really most of us, and, and at the same time, we've also seen this loss of, of religious following, this higher need, you know, replaced to some degree by technology. So where are we going in terms of our higher needs and consciousness? Well, <laughs> It, it's it's becoming evident to people, I think, that there isn't really such a thing as an atheist, right? <laughs> um, that the person who said there is no God in January of last year, the moment they became scared of something, created a God very quickly mm. and called that God the science mm. and followed that God, even though that God has had no... <laughs> experience whatsoever in uh, adjudicating important ethical and moral questions under conditions of stress. Um, so I think a lot of people will probably acknowledge that that has had something to do with the problem and wonder whether by throwing out all elements of the old religions that they were doing a wise thing and whether they hadn't, in fact, replaced the old religions with new cults, which were very destructive. And that may, uh, I think, bring about some kind of awakening. I hesitate to use the word spiritual, because that's one of the words that was used by people who abandoned the traditional religions in order to pretend that they were somehow connected to the universe in some woo-woo, flowery kind of way that didn't embed any real content. You had, you had lots of people telling you, you know, I, I'm, I'm not religious, but I'm a very spiritual person, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and that kind of stuff, I think, doesn't help at all because it, it, it just it has no ethical con content, cannot benefit from the accumulation of traditions that solve 
ineffable problems lost in the midst of time, you know, um, that problems that we're only aware of, as uh, uh, many commentators point out, when we jettison the traditions. But you, you don't um, think, it, it, to some extent, it, it is people saying that I've lost trust in the institutions of religion, and just as as many people, I think, are in the process of starting to lose trust in the institution of science. I, I notice you did say um, the science, um, which, which uh, of course, is the problem because the science is is a manipulation of, of true science. It is nothing it else. Not a, there's no science going on in the science. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. so for people who aspire yeah. to an understanding of something high that is higher than human. Um, you know, we need to de develop a, a new vocabulary around that. Um, I, I think fundamentally people have become disillusioned with authority and um, a lot of people are trying to look more deeply into themselves, whether it's soul, whether it's higher needs, whether it's um, being able to, uh, you know, engage in forms of creativity that are seem to be quite unique to humanity but but that has been suppressed and there are uh, when we look at the so-called awakened ones the people who see the problems they tend to be more tuned into this idea of creating societies that do take into account the fact that we are more than just biological machines yes and and that we have a goal that goes or, or a, a purpose uh, that goes beyond the, the mere elongation of, uh, of, uh, of life, uh, stretching out of meaningless boredom full days. But is, is, this, um, is this what separates the, it's just because uh, we're getting close to the end and I just want to get some, uh, some of your perspectives on this. What, what separates fundamentally as human beings the people who are within that elite that are controlling the centralized agenda versus those of us who are awake to the fact that that probably isn't the way to go. Is it just the relationship um, with technology and this idea that, that humans can be augmented by technology, which is really to some degree what transhumanism is about? How would you define that fundamental difference? Because if there is going to be a you know, uh, a separating of the ways. We need to understand, you know, who these people are, how we define ourselves, and what it is ultimately to be a human that, that you know, can create a better world for future generations. Yeah, I mean, the, the awakening needs to take place in us, you know. Um, so I think, I think transhumanism is a, is a very bad set of intellectual kind of constructs. Uh, that would take a whole hour to, to, to go through those, so I won't start now. But I mean, my, my view is that, that that's not where the problem actually is. It's this one element. But, um, <clears throat> no, you know, the, the, the problem is that we need to confront the question of how do you uh, find for more people the engaged, curious, um, meaningful, purposeful existence? What are the characteristics of a life that is experienced as having those qualities. And, you know, so, so that's where I have lived for the, the longest of times. I have uh, uh, always felt this uh, sense of, um, of richness 
and uh, I don't mean material richness. Um, so so it, for me, the world is this wonderful, interesting place, and uh, I, I kind of run out of hours in the day to explore it. And there's so many domains that I'm interested in, and it just never ends. Um, there's mystery and curiosity are all over, and I love them. I relish it all. Uh, so how, I, I don't know, how do we find the, a way to um, take people who have felt alienated um, and exposed and alone in a material world where the individual has been stripped out of community and culture and leads a very atomized existence often working as a meaningless part of a large corporate machinery or bureaucratic machinery. How do we confront that? How do we begin to, uh, to change that story? It's not by giving them more computer games and more leisure time and more vaccines and uh, more screen time. I don't know uh, what else uh, the, the technocrats have in mind for by way of baubles for the masses. But Social contracts and um, stakeholder capitalism are too disaster. big. Yeah, disaster concepts. Um, they're not going to be the solutions. Mm. So, I, I mean, there is a current of thought that I, I totally endorse this idea of, of, um, of cancelling yourself, you know. Just, just do it right now. Don't, don't live your life in fear of being cancelled by the corporate machinery or your uh your peer set or whatever just take yourself out now do yourself a favor cancel yourself now and start building an independent existence uh you don't maybe need 80 percent of what you're spending money on uh you do maybe need the the space to be your own person sovereignty, I mean, sovereignty really sovereign, individual sovereignty and it doesn't need to mean atomistic independence you can find individual sovereignty in community in the local but it, it's not it's, it's it hasn't escaped my my attention that in south africa the large corporations are the only ones really driving vaccine mandates small corporations are having none of it and i look at those and i see these young people saying oh yeah 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 so now i want to I've, I've been accepted for a place there i'm going to have to go and get the vaccine and i said to them yeah you know you you will if you want to take that job uh, at that company, but imagine all the other things that you're required to do that they're not telling you about the the kind of thought policing and double speak and and uh, compelled language and uh, conformity that is going to come with a company that feels that it's uh, completely within its rights to tell you to inject an experimental substance into your body even if you can't benefit from it. Um, you know, just imagine. What kind of where what you are doing to your soul when you sign up to that beast? There you go. Well, I, I mean, Nick, that is um, we, we've had a huge tour from the the micro to the the macro, and we've come all the way back to the individual and to this idea of sovereignty. Um, if you could just finish off by by just um, giving a few kind of because this is a positive place to to end our, our speaking naturally conversation. Um, but just, you know, vaccines is one part, but just explain how sovereignty looks for the average person. What do they need to do that's different from what their governments want them to do? And how does that kind of look to the individual? Because it's more than just vaccines, isn't it? 
For sure, yeah. Uh, it's a whole range of uh, compelled acts and um, regulated. And if you've been uh, vaccinated uh, already, if you've had a jab, you can still do it. So, so just just sure. give us give us a yes. Yes, a jab doesn't. Uh, you know, having having had a jab doesn't uh, represent some uh, ultimate and fatal capitulation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at at any point in time, it, it's 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 a decision. Uh, do you decide to pursue a life that is independent? And that sounds more scary to people than it is. And yes, it will require change and adjustment, but they're the kinds of changes and adjustments that people all over the world in all levels of income and ways of life and walks of life have, 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 have made and undertaken. Um, that your life doesn't end when you can no longer go to the annual office party or whatever it is that uh, yeah. your life doesn't end when you when you downgrade your vehicle or uh, um, live in a smaller uh, uh, dwelling uh, yes. or have less money to spend on online entertainment. Um, people need to just accept that it's the financial system for many people that's the hardest thing i mean from a healthcare perspective it's easier you can plug you can decide not to go to the local hospital or to receive drugs from your primary care physician um unplugging from the financial system um even unplugging from the transport system that you know unplugging from the the uh, global food system for many people, those things are, are somewhat tougher sometimes. Yes, finding ways to use those systems on your own terms. Look, there, a, lot of, a lot of this is in the domain of the creation of future knowledge. You've got to, it's committing to the project of doing that. That's important. We don't have all the solutions already, but parallel society is forming a pace. Um, already we see doctors groups forming, you know, who signal that they are attuned to holistic medicine and well-being um, and will look after their patients from that perspective um, and you know that I think will will gather steam um, and so too on the education front you can take that technology that's used to oppress you and to enslave your mind and d- destroy your curiosity and turn it into the source of uh, education where the conventional institutions have failed. Fantastic. Nick, look, amazing. We, we've got to put our intention there and um, we will create a, a new future. Um, I, I just love your perspectives. on you, You've got to write a book about it, okay? Um, and uh, it, it's been amazing talking to you. Um, and it's, it's fantastic being uh, more linked up with Panda now. For me, this is one of the great things that has been happening. So many of us from so many different backgrounds are now in communication with each other in the way that we weren't before all of this. So um, yes. a huge thank you for your time today. I'm glad you pointed that out. It's a, it has, has indeed been a, a remarkable journey to meet all these people who have uh, pierced, the, pierced the veil of the, the media um, fog sort of thing. Uh, so thank you very much as well. And and I love the fact that we can just about see the the panda to your right. Oh, yes, there it is. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
Fantastic. There he is, Panda. Yeah. Okay, we'll put the links. The airport with him the other day. Yeah, we'll, everybody. Okay, bye we'll bye. Links to Panda in 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 the links after this. But um, Nick, thank you so much. Thank you, Robert. Yeah, and, and thank you to your listeners. 